With 1.9 million cases in America as of today and America's unemployment rate falling to 13.3%, as millions of workers have been declared unemployed, it is evident how catastrophic this global pandemic has been and continues to be. Welcome to Keeping Up with America. My name is Manroop and today we'll be looking at how the COVID-19 outbreak has been affecting America's economic atmosphere. In a time of economic disaster, many turned to a time in history that was similar to what we had expected to happen in America, a recession. The current economic crisis highlights the Great Recession of 2008 in terms of the widespread damage that is to occur. It is evident that there are differences between the current COVID-19 pandemic and the Great Recession and Great Depression. The Great Recession and the Great Depression were essentially demand shocks, while this pandemic is a supply shock. The difference is that everything in society was functioning normally during 2020. But as COVID-19 intensified, it brings tens of thousands into the healthcare system and in result, we have decided to shut down the economy. The reason why this situation holds such a unique circumstance is because the government prohibits people from going back to work. If you think about it, supply is the measure of what we collectively produce. But the virus caused a sudden contraction of the labor supply. This has then caused a loss of confidence that resulted in a demand shock too. But it's a spillover, which is an indirect effect due to a fundamental contraction in our ability to produce goods and services. If you want to compare the current crisis to something that has happened in the past, however, a better comparison is the oil shock and energy crisis during the 1970s and early 1980s. The sharp increase in the price of oil made the production and transportation of goods a lot more expensive, hindering productive capacity as it is going on right now. If we want to look at the long-term consequences of the COVID-19 crisis, we should focus on public debt. The Great Recession left us with the legacy in the U.S. of greatly expanded government debt. We think of the Great Recession as a temporary shock that we recovered from, but now as we look at the current crisis, we'll be increasing government debt greatly compared to the GDP. This is a legacy that will remain for a long time and will pose very pressing policy questions. Looking at the current effects of the pandemic, we can see that the demand for oil has all but dried up as lockdowns around the world have kept people inside. The crude oil price have already been affected by a row between OPEC, the group of oil producers, and Russia. The coronavirus has driven the price down further. Now, if the economy is growing, that generally means more wealth and more new jobs. It's measured by looking at the percentage change in gross domestic product or the value of goods and services produced, typically over three months or a year. But the International Monetary Fund, or IMF, says that the global economy will shrink by 3% this year. Now, governments around the world have urged employers to work from home where possible. 
Shares in technology companies such as Zoom have shot up as more people rely on video conference calls and email to hold meetings or get tasks done. In China, where the coronavirus first appeared, industrial production, sales, and investment all fell in the first three months of the year, compared with the same period in 2019. China makes up a third of our manufacturing globally and is the largest, world's largest exporter of goods. Restrictions have affected the supply chain of larger companies, such as industrial equipment maker JCB and car maker Nissan. Shops and car dealers have all reported a fall in demand. Chinese car sales, for example, dropped by 48% in March. More car makers like Tesla or Greeley are now selling cars online as customers stay away from the showrooms. We can also see that over the past several weeks, we've seen the central banks around the world, particularly the European Central Bank and the Federal Reserve, move with extraordinary speed to shore up financial markets. But these efforts have not calmed volatility. The real difference between the Federal Reserve and the ECB, or the European Central Bank, is how timely these have been in their responses. The U.S. started very strongly with a preemptive strike, style intervention, announcing a rate cut outside of the usual standard monthly meeting. Conversely, the president of the European Central Bank held the usual press conference following the monthly meeting of a bank board. But her language wasn't clear on exactly how much the ECB would act in order to combat the global shock from the pandemic. For central bankers, words often matter more than the actual money. So the wording of statements is crucial, especially airtimes like this. We, if we look at the uncertain start by the ECB and quick action by the Federal Reserve, in both cases, the real difference is not about the money that the central banks can put down, but rather how credible they can be to serve as an anchor against uncertainty. This is a concern for everyone right now. We have a great degree of uncertainty in how long this pandemic will last, and that's fundamental, unfortunately. What we don't want is to add an additional layer of uncertainty about policy. The additional uncertainty is whether central banks are willing to support the financial sector to make sure that credit keeps on flowing to the real economy, no matter what. This is not as obvious as it might sound. Banks hold a large amount of government debt in their balance sheets, and whenever government bonds come under pressure, the increase in their yields threatens the stability of the banking system. During such an unprecedented situation, the last thing a central banker should suggest is that an essential part of the private bank assets could suffer, hindering their ability to operate and extend credit. Facing an unconventional shock, poor messaging and language is a huge drawback. The central bank needs to be clear so that their language matches the extraordinary moment that we are facing. I find this outbreak as the most pressing uncertainty. The economic disruptions caused by the virus and the increased uncertainty are being reflected in lower valuations and increased volatility in the financial markets. 
Policymakers should therefore immediately undertake a number of steps to address an economic fallout from the virus. The burden of meeting these, this challenge falls squarely on Congress and the Trump administration. To its credit, the Federal Reserve has aggressively cut interest rates, but monetary policy will likely have a very limited effect since interest rates are already low and have been so for some time. To put the U.S. economy on steady footing, CAP recommends that Congress and the Trump administration engage in physical stimulus and embrace five key principles for economic policy action in response to the coronavirus. One, do no harm. Two, put more, not fewer resources in public health efforts. Three, assure businesses that things will be fine if the virus hits their sector and remediate harm when necessary. Four, calm financial markets. I find this very important. And five, ease the risks for households and vulnerable populations. The risks to the economy from the spread of the virus can be contained, even if the virus cannot. Congress and the Trump administration, however, will need to act quickly and communicate their actions clearly to ensure that the U.S. economy faces a more certain future. Now, the reason why it is so hard to accurately depict the harms that will be caused from this pandemic is because the economic shutdown was engineered. This has never happened before, and it made it a lot harder for economists to predict how the real world would behave. While flipping a switch to turn the economy off worked, it wasn't clear how or when the reverse would happen. Even after the buoyant May job report, there are plenty of unknowns and economic forecasts could continue to fumble. There is no underselling it. This was a huge surprise. The job report is showing the first green shoots of the reopened economy. Even after the unemployment rate is still higher than during the 2008 financial crisis that America had to endure, the gradual reopening of the economy actually added new jobs rather than eliminating further positions. Construction jobs, for example, increased by 464,000 in May, gaining back nearly half of what they lost in April. Construction activity is part of the first phase of reopening. Jobs also returned in retail, as well as education and health services, which are counted together as one sector. Government jobs declined by 585,000, however. Healthcare hires were boosted by dentist office reopenings, which added 244,800 jobs. Doctors and dentist offices were shut down for routine treatments during the height of the lockdown. But not all new jobs were full-time positions. Part-time workers accounted for some two-fifths of the employment growth in May. Nearly 10.5 million people are working part-time for economic reasons, compared to the 4.2 million in February. That is about like a 6.3 million jump. The unemployment population ratio, which measures how much of the working age population is employed, rose 1.5 percent points to 52.8 percent. That comes after an 8.7 percent point collapse in April, 
when the ratio hit its lowest level since records started in 1984. Despite the increase in May, the ratio is still lower than ever before. Following the shutdown of the economy in March, predicting what a reopening would look like and whether the labor market would bounce back proved difficult for economists. Just as much as we are hoping that job losses were temporary, we have to make sure that the job gains are permanent. The recovery is a good sign that the hoped-for rebound from the pandemic downturn is going to be faster than feared. The labor markets hold the keys to the economic trajectory. The government responded to the crisis with a multi-trillion rescue package that expanded unemployment benefits to help the country throughout this recession. Stimulus checks were designed to get people spending and the economy back on its feet were just a one-off so far. Expanded unemployment benefits that added $600 per week in aid are set to end at the end of July. Washington supported businesses through the Paycheck Protection Program, which required them to rehire a certain percentage of their workers. But there is a risk that some of these workers may be let go of their loan money runs out. Businesses are required to spend it within 24 weeks. While the labor market rebounded in May, more help might be needed from the Washington as economists wonder what will happen when the stimulus programs roll off. Claims for unemployment benefits, which are reported by the Department of Labor, are still in unprecedented territory. Some 21.5 million Americans have filed for jobless benefits for at least two weeks in a row. On top of that, 10.4 million people have filed for continued pandemic benefits, which are a part of the government's economic stimulus package. Jobless claims don't equal lost jobs, as the Labor Department and BLS use different surveys to arrive at their data. But it shines a light on the continued pain for American workers, even as the unemployment rate is coming down from its suspected April peak. The U.S. economy relies on consumer spending, which is why it's so important to keep American wallets stuffed with cash. The current second quarter of the year is still expected to be ugly, with forecasts as dire as 40% annualized drop in GDP. But after Friday's outperformance, experts might rethink their models. Even with the surprising bit of good news, the job market remains in deep hole. With nearly 20 million fewer jobs than in February, the U.S. unemployment has been set back by nearly a decade. And in the total number of jobs is at its lowest point since December 2011. A wider measure of the unemployment, known as the U6 or underemployment rate, remains elevated at 21.2% in May, showing more than one in five American workers were either unemployed, working part-time for economic reasons, or had dropped out of the labor force in recent weeks. The declining headline unemployment rate also doesn't tell the story of discrepancies between demographic regions. For example, overall unemployment went down, but white workers were the ones reaping the benefits. The unemployment rate for white workers fell to 12.4%, while the rate for black workers crept up to 16.8%.
more black workers joined the labor force last month. But because not all of them got jobs, the unemployment rate ticked up. The rate ties the highest level it was during the Great Recession. As we think of the future of advanced economies in the U.S., we have to ask ourselves, how will we be dealing with the level of government debt that will succeed, exceed as the share of GDP, the amount we had at the end of the World War II? Our management of our new massive debt through the policy responses in the aftermath of the crisis will shape our society, determining the economic balance between generations, the actual opportunities for our future generations, and technological disruptions and transformations that was already in place before this outbreak.